This is Cultivating Place, conversations on natural history and the human impulse to garden. From North State Public Radio in Northern California, I'm Jennifer Jewell. Two weeks ago, we began a meta-gardening theme in conversation with architect David Avalo, who had us consider our gardens from the inside out. Today, we continue in this inquisitive mode with gardener and father and lawyer Tucker Fitzpatrick. Based in Southern California, his international travels for work have him thinking a lot about how cultural norms and biases directly impact and shape even, for better and worse, how and why we garden in some really interesting ways. Tucker is a father, a lawyer, a gardener, and a gardening culture observer. He joins us today from his home and garden in Southern California to share more about his gardening journey and his curiosity about gardening culture writ large. Welcome, Tucker. Thank you, Jennifer. Uh, it's really nice talking to you. So, first of all, share share with listeners. What does your gardening practice look like? What does your garden look like? You think about gardening. You care about gardening. You are a gardener. Describe your gardening practice for us. Sure. Yeah, I I definitely think of myself as a passionate gardener. As you mentioned, I'm in Southern California, uh, Sunset Zone 22, USDA Zone 10A. And I probably, you know, I live in a, a pretty typical suburban neighborhood I have about a 7,000 square foot lot, probably 2,500 square feet of that is devoted to is dirt, essentially, that can be gardened. And, you know, I spend three to five hours a weekend on it. Um, I describe my my gardening style as really eclectic. You know, I'm an office worker. I, you know, I work uh, not too far away in a, in a typical modern office building. And so when I come home, I want something that's that's different and and vivacious and exciting and is really going to just uh, kind of transform my mindset from that work mode. Now I'm I'm home. I'm doing something different. My brain can kind of explore different sensations, and so my gardening style is uh, I'd say it has a lot of contrasts. It has a lot of uh, experimentation. So I've got, say, native Cleveland sage next to Formium jester, which is, you know, a great contrast. And then, say the, you know, the big broad leaves of Sacred Datura next to the the tiny little needle leaves of rosemary. Hmm. I've got uh, a lot of some of the old, you know, gardening standbys just because I can, um, and because they're great, like roses and. Uh, the front of my house is divided into three pieces of of garden uh, separated by hardscape, you know, the driveway and then a little walkway to the front door. In the middle section, there's an arbutus and the arbutus is surrounded by um, kind of low growing native plants like uh, California primrose. Mm. And uh, I've got some pretty young native yuccas there. So it's got some non-natives in the front too, like, you know, some euphorbias and that sort of thing. Behind the arbutus is um, three leucodendrons that really complement the color of the red bark of the arbutus. So yeah. it's, it's uh, leucodendron, you know, conebush, sunset, safari. And beneath them are, uh, it's your favorite, buckwheat. Yes. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've got some buckwheats and some poppies and some uh, blue-eyed grass and that sort of thing. So, Which areogonums do you have there, Tucker? It's the... Um, 
uh, Ariagdum grande rubescens oh, in that yeah. middle garden. And then on the left garden underneath a tree, I've got one that has silvery foliage and I uh, don't recall the exact name of it. Is it little or is it big? It's little. They're both little. Is it crocatum? Crocatum? With those um, sort of like, you know, sur- like, uh, what's that, chartreuse flowers over the silver and then they turn the kind of cinnamon color? No, I don't think it's that one. It's okay. one that has more yellowy flowers. And I think you can grow more and different areogonums than I can because your zone is just that much milder. Yeah, it's a really forgiving zone, honestly. <laughs> it's, yeah. um, you know, we, we get um, – don't usually get down to freezing and we usually don't go above say high 90s yeah. um, where I know where you are you, you I think you guys regularly go about you know go into the triple digits and I'm not sure about the freezing temperatures but both we get um, both yes yeah, yeah. Sorry. but that, no that's good that's good okay so we've we've gone past the and that's just such a pretty combination the leucodendron behind that arbutus and then the I, I love that contrast of the the silverly silvery foliage the blue flowers against that red bark and then the grande rubescence and those like sort of airy pink blooms coming in underneath that that's just a beautiful combination tucker yeah yeah thank you yeah and on the on the left side, um, I've got three liquid amber trees that are, you know, my neighborhood is full of um, these trees that are really just, you know, planted in the 70s and you mm-hmm. know not appropriate to the climate. But you know, I've got three really big trees there, and underneath of those, I've got things. Well, first of all, I've created a little uh, a little spiral pathway inspired by Mary Reynolds, um, you know, as part of her. Uh, I guess philosophy of you know identifying kind of these 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 ancient natural uh, symbols mm-hmm. and around that pathway um, in the front um, towards the sunny side of the garden I've got an octopus agave and uh, some some lower coastal sages that's where you know two of my surviving um, <laughs> Cleveland sages are mm-hmm. and so some other uh, another leucodendron and a um, Euphorbia martini, I guess, oh, okay, it's a miniature yep. version. I think the more common one, but mm-hmm. yeah, I've got those kind of scattered about. Which, when they're in bloom too, they kind of have this nice light, airy aspect to them that's yellow and kind of a neat contrast to the silvery foliage of the native plants. And um, you know, as you as it gets more towards the shade, I've got a row of um, you know, a digiplexus illumination flame, which have these. I guess you'd call them kind of peachy apricot color blooms that spike up, and then the uh, some purple plant in the back that's um, Trachelium ceruleum, mm-hmm. and it ha- it's uh, and it has these you know big purple umbels on it that are fluffy, and as further back into the shade, then you get into Douglas iris and uh, a couple of uh, camellias. So that's on the left side. On the right side, I've got uh, two chitalpa trees. Which are the you know the the uh, the desert willow hybrid, and they've got really pretty um, kind of whitish pink flowers, and underneath of them uh, I've got pur- some some purple garden sage, and uh, I'm trying to think what else I'm I'm growing to oh yeah I've got the uh, salvia terra seca which is the prostate native sage oh yeah yeah, and surprisingly underneath these trees. I've got my Cleveland sage that's doing the best. It's been there for, I think, 
four years now. And, you know, despite all advice of it needing, you know, hot, full sun conditions and, and that sort of thing, it's thriving in shade. So there you go. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes we have to listen to the plants, not to the books that tell us about the plants, right? Because, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And that's what, that's what I love about gardening. And there's, there's so much experimentation involved in mm-hmm. it. Yeah. And so as a ground cover down there, I've got uh, really low growing oregano and uh some other kind of Mediterranean plants um, and some some native um, Zalchnerias, mm-hmm. uh, which are uh, California fuchsia is the common name, and so I'm not even sure if Zalchneria is the right. Well, it went to Epilobium, Epilobium, and then maybe it went back to Zalchneria. But we know what you're talking about. The California, okay, the excellent, California excellent. fuchsia will hold us for now. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Kind of like really small silvery leaves, and then these these kind of bright red. Uh, Bright red uh, flowers that are bloom now in August, which is nice. It's a nice to have that after the kind of the yeah the the great show we got in spring this year after all the rain. Yeah, and then do yeah. you have a back garden? I do. Yeah. So in the back, um, you would go in into the back along a side yard along a path that's shaded by Italian cypress, mm. and under the Italian cypress, I've got uh, you know mother-in-law's tongue and. Uh, which are those, you know, the tall spiky plants yeah. um, or I guess I, I guess you'd describe them as they're, they're just kind of like they come up as a single leaf mm-hmm. and they spread pretty well if you don't uh, give them too much water. And then they're contrasted with some cordyline resiliensis, which is a kind of a symmetrically and cylindrically growing cordyline that has these dark purple leaves. And also there's some dark glossy leaves of camellia back there. And I tried to to also kind of put that as an, as an, an understory with some chartreuse heuchera. I'm not, never sure how to say that. Yeah. Yeah. And then as you get more into the sun, then I've got some gardenias. Uh, I've got a red quarter line. Uh, I think I think it's a, a tea plant, more or less, that, a T-I, tea, contrasting with uh, some pale green bromeliads. Mm. And then... When I, you know, when I moved into this house, the, my, the the predecessor owner, she was kind of a minimalist, and so everything was green, and she had no, she had you know none of this basically, and I replaced what was a fig vine growing all across the back of the property, on some juniper trees, or I actually got rid of the fig vine, and uh, put in kind of four big pots filled with yuccas, and then flowering vines growing on these juniper trees. So I've got a cup of gold vine and I'm training a couple of roses up those, those mm. trees as well. Mm. And then the, these beautiful uh, terracotta pots that have uh, uh, the, those kind of feathery leaves of banksia and, and kind of the feathery flower of mm-hmm. banksia mm. kind of lolling out in front of them. And then over to the sunny side of the, the yard, uh, I've got um, a small lemon tree and a small kumquat tree, and that's where I've currently got a sacred datura trying to take over and eat the whole thing. <laughs> eat the whole I, I have one like there. that this summer too. Oh. Yeah, I mean that thing is going nuts, um, but it's beautiful. It puts out these, you know, these big white flowers and uh, these really interesting-looking seeds that are like. I don't know, the size of apricots and they're green and they're spiky and just just a really, really interesting plant. 
And then on the so then if you go kind of kind of to complete the tour to go to the north side of the house, there's some it's it's designed as a shade garden with some ferns along the ground of bamboo uh, to kind of give them shade in the in the summer when the sun actually shines over there. Uh, it's got a uh, a Madagascar jasmine that's uh, growing up a schlefera tree that kind of escaped from a pot that was put there many many years ago, and it's now about 20 feet tall. So uh, yeah, so that's the garden. Like I said, I try to keep it full of you know contrast and interest and excitement. And, oh, and in the backyard, also up against the house, I've got some roses and some fragrant geraniums and hollyhocks and and other things that you know that are real visual plants that are also kind of a little bit fussy and so can benefit from the morning sun that's right there. I'm Jennifer Jewell, and this is Cultivating Place. Tucker Fitzpatrick is a father, a lawyer, a gardener, and a keen and curious observer of gardening culture wherever he goes. We'll be right back for more with Tucker after a break. Stay with us. Hey, it's Jennifer. So Tucker and I have communicated back and forth, like I do with a great many of you, about this interesting consideration on why different cultures support and raise up and value gardening, or they don't. I wanted to share what he wrote in one of his emails. Quote, I think we Americans are predisposed to chasing shiny new objects and de-emphasizing tradition. The other side of this coin is our society's emphasis on individuality. Both sides of this coin are reflected in our gardening. When you travel to other countries, especially those with long histories, you can't help but be impressed by their palaces and gardens and the long history of gardening rooted in their history, philosophy, and sense of beauty. These traditions can reverberate into popular culture in those countries, creating an even higher profile for gardening. We don't have as much of this type of cultural legacy, at least not exposed and publicized. And ours competes in the popular culture sphere with the shiny new toys we are so fond of. Since tradition is sparser and more spread out over groups of people in the U.S., our gardening is more grassroots, not top-down, and we each follow more individual paths. The individuality and diversity in our large country makes it hard to achieve the critical mass, perhaps, needed to transcend the niche into popular culture or the national consciousness for any particular embodiment of American gardening. In the U.S., we seem to have very many historic gardening institutions and societies that reflect our different gardening interests. Like gardening organizations, the gardening media we have represents a few of the segments of our diverse gardening interests. For me personally, Tucker says, gardening is based on what I find rewarding. I pick which traditions appeal to me based on what I've discovered over the years. My garden isn't a cottage style or a Mediterranean style. It's just my favorite parts of whatever styles I happen to see, read about, or hear about. Spoken like a true American, right? End quote. If you have thoughts you'd like to share about the nature of the culture of gardening where you are, I'd love to read them. 
send me a voice memo or an email to cultivatingplace at gmail.com. Now back to our conversation with father, lawyer, gardener, and garden considerer, Tucker Fitzpatrick. This is Cultivating Place, conversations on natural history and the human impulse to garden. We're back to our conversation with Tucker Fitzpatrick, home gardener and global garden visitor and observer. As we come back, he shares how he came to be in his current house and garden and some of the influences to be found there. Yeah, so I moved here in 2014. I have a son and he um, divorced and I have 50% custody of him. And so he's here half the time. Yeah. And uh, when I moved in, as I mentioned, the um, the previous owner, she she liked it green. It was, uh, you know, green grass and clipped hedges and uh, really tightly trimmed trees and green vines. And so it's been a total transformation in, uh, in yeah, since I've lived here. And how old is your son? He's nine. And does he engage in the garden with you? Is this something he enjoys or is this something that he sort of rolls his eyes about? Because I have children and I know it can go both ways. Sometimes the the children do both, depending on the day. He loves things about being outside, Mm -hmm. like, uh, you know, going outside and, and playing with different toys and things. But honestly, the garden itself, he's not that interested in. Every now and then he will, um, enjoy the smell of a plant and he's really into smells, which is great. So he'll smell the Cleveland sage. He'll smell any flowers, like anything. I say, Hey Brady, this is, this smells good. You got to give this a try. He'll definitely be into that and, and appreciate that. Um, otherwise, you know, we're kind of starting small, we're growing radishes and we've got a couple of pumpkin vines growing this year. And so I'm just trying to teach him the basics of like, okay, this, you know, you water them and they grow. And that's kind of where we're starting. This is a radish. This is a pumpkin. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and I ask this because I think it is part and parcel of where you and I are heading with this conversation, which is this concept of garden culture. And I am visualizing the garden you've just walked us through. And one, you are making just... From from what I am visualizing, you are making the most of your very cool and expansive zone. You have plants from native to Southern California and California. You have plants native to Australia. You have, you know, the camellias from Asia and the uh, gardenias. You have these just this great as you as you described yourself right in the beginning. This eclectic mix of. Um, of references and concepts and looks that feel good to you and are working in in the zone that you are in and with some of the exposures that you have there. So before we get deep into our culture conversation, where where did you grow up? Where where did you and how did you become a plant person and and someone for whom Coming home from a hard day at the office, happiness meant like getting out there in the soil and being with plants and dirt and fresh air. Yeah, I grew up in northern Delaware and I lived there for the first, um, I say, let's say I lived on the East Coast until I was about 25, 26 or so, maybe Mm -hmm. 27, moved to California in 1998 and, uh, you know, kind of dappled in gardening, you know, all along. 
but then really, really got into it in uh, 2014 when I moved to my current house. Mm -hmm. But, you know, growing up, um, my parents would take us camping or to Longwood Gardens. And in the summer, we, you know, we often went to day camp, which is, you know, nature oriented. So there's definitely a lot of exposure to nature growing up and exposure to, you know, to gardens like Longwood that really, I guess, instilled in me that initial wonder, like, wow, this, this stuff can be really cool. You know, you know, I just remember as a kid going to that giant conservatory at Longwood Gardens and seeing these big, you know, palm trees and ferns and, you know, all this crazy stuff. And outside it's wintertime and, you know, Southern Pennsylvania and there's, you know, nothing's going on, but inside everything is happening. So I, I think that just really showed me the potential, I guess, for, for what plants could do. Yeah. And were either of your parents or were your grandparents, were any of your close adults, were they active gardeners? My mom was and is a really big gardener. Um, she always was growing, you know, strawberries or roses or, or whatever. Now she's turned into what I call a crazy orchid lady because she <laughs> probably has 50 orchids. And she's got this touch where she can, I mean, I actually visited her in uh, July and her front porch, like I said, has about 50 orchids in it. You know, they're all in various states of bloom and health and they look amazing. And so she's, yeah, she's, she's really into it. Yeah. So, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about a person who grows up and, and is taken somewhere like Longwood Gardens. And interestingly enough, I, I'm not sure if you heard that episode, but we had a, a great episode with a woman, Abra Lee, who was in this year's cohort of um, professional students at in the Longwood Graduate Program. And, you know, there's something about going, like going to a place like Longwood, which is sort of the garden equivalent of going to the Metropolitan Museum of Art in in New York, where you all of a sudden are shown that gardens are this cultural treasure. They are a destination. They are an art form. They are a literacy that if you'd never been to such a garden, you maybe wouldn't be aware of. But that, you know, just the fact that you went into a conservatory in the middle of winter, that puts you contextually into such an incredible historical stream of uh, great gardeners, great gardens, plant seekers, and horticulturalists across time and space, right? Absolutely. And I feel like living here in Zone 10A, I can really channel my, you know, Victorian plant collector, right. and, <laughs> you know, just get whatever I want and try to grow it. And, 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 and you know, when I do that with varying degrees of success, um, but I definitely, you know, get that excitement that, people must have felt back then when all of a sudden it was possible to get these new plants and, and, you know, build structures to allow them to grow in different climates. And yeah, it's, uh, really, really, uh, I guess helps me understand how they felt back then. Or I do understand how they felt back then. I think it must be this basic human instinct to, to, to try this sort of thing. Yeah. And so what do you do for a living and, I, because I believe that part of what you do for a living leads you to traveling quite a bit. I travel a bit. Uh, I'm a, I'm a corporate lawyer for a financial services company, and so I do make it to um, Europe and Asia every now and then. And so, yeah, I, I definitely 
it's high on my to-do list to um, visit different botanical sites. I went to Munich in June, and you know, the first thing I did on my my free time was visit the Munich Botanic Garden. And uh, yeah, I, I definitely take advantage of the travel. And it's interesting traveling in Europe. I'm amazed at uh, well, first of all, you know, it's it's really great to see these different. Um, I guess, context that the plants are in and the history of these different institutions. But it also just amazes me kind of how similar the plant palettes are. Mm -hmm. I, I went to the um, the technical university in, in Freising that's outside of Munich, and they have these spectacular trial gardens there that actually gave me a lot of ideas that um, I've been, you know, thinking about and looking back at the pictures and contemplating if I could do anything with them. But probably 70 or 80% of the genuses I was familiar with. So that was in a way really cool that there's this common global plant palette mm -hmm. in some ways, mm -hmm. you know, in other ways you're going to think, okay, well, is this really, um, it takes a little bit of the wonder out of it, but I guess our climate zones aren't that different. So, um, you know, when you go to Singapore and then it's, it's totally, it's really kind of their, their botanic garden is, you know, full of jungle, you know, it's, orchids and, and all these things that it really are, you know, not known to the average gardener in the United States, uh, maybe outside of South Florida and Hawaii or something like that. Yeah. That sort of familiarity that I find both fascinating and comforting when you're traveling abroad, because you know, it's probably a different species, certainly than we may see here. So for instance, um, I was in Hungary and Slovakia and um, the Czech Republic in and Austria earlier this summer. And to travel there, and I think as a gardener, one of the one of the things I love talking to other gardeners about is that joy we get of traveling and visiting gardens because you do have this sense of like, that's a camellia. I can recognize a camellia yeah, even yeah, across the yeah. world, right? Um and recognizing these uh, familiar faces, but they are just maybe a little different. So it might be a species or a cultivar that's just slightly different than ours. And I felt the same way about seeing, um, you know, like bees and butterflies. I'd be like, I think that's a bumblebee, but it's not the same bumblebee that I live with. And that different sameness I found really compelling when I was traveling this last year. Oh, absolutely. I mean, one of the things that really... Uh, struck me uh, in Munich was that they were using Ricinus communis as this beautiful ornamental plant with big red leaves. And I was like, what is this spectacular plant? <laughs> and I went and looked at it and it's, you know, Ricinus communis, which is, oh my gosh, that's this, this horrible invasive plant here. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's poisonous and we try to eradicate it. And here they are using it as this, this, this really fantastic ornamental. So yeah, it's, it's, it's really fascinating. So when I, when I was in Munich last, the other thing that struck me was how they would let their um, median strips just kind mm -hmm. of go wild. And I don't know if they were planted with wildflowers or if things were just growing like that. But it was such a different cultural approach because that would never happen in Orange County. I mean, it just things that, you know, things are clipped to the millimeter, any, you know, free dirt is any spit, fallen leaf is blown away with a leaf blower and that sort of thing. You know, even in some of these real, some towns like Mission View have these really nice median strip plantings that are 
that are succulents and grasses and roses, and they're really spectacular, but they're just really, really well tended also. So just that different approach to here we can't quite seem to relinquish control over our gardens that much. I would say that's definitely uh, a local thing here in, in where I live anyway. I don't know about other parts of uh, California. Well, I think – you know, I had the exact same experience when I was traveling in Central Europe of I found myself taking photographs of their roadside verges, and they were definitely purposefully meadow-like. And there were grasses and wildflowers, and they were left long on purpose. And they were not full of trash, so they were tended. Somebody was there tending them, um, mm-hmm. but they were – They were purposefully left to be wildlife corridors. And I found myself wondering, and I I don't have an answer to this, Tucker, but I found myself wondering, like, who's behind this? Who who is making sure that this happened? Is this a result of those terrible reports that did come out of Germany? Um, I want to say what are we, we're 2019 right now. So I think those came out first in 2017 or, or early 2018, where they found the results of their wildlife study and were noting this, like, apocalyptic decrease in flying insect life across all parts of Germany. And so I I wanted to know more about their cultural valuation of these spaces. Yeah, and I think, you know, Germans really value their value their nature. I mean, they love walks in the woods and the mountains mm-hmm. and that sort of thing. And the Green Party is a really powerful party there. Uh, it's the third biggest, I think. So it wouldn't surprise me that a report like the rapid decrease of insect population would lead to some policy action. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'm Jennifer Jewell, and this is Cultivating Place. Tucker Fitzpatrick is a father, a lawyer, a gardener. Tucker travels a great deal for work, and this travel allows him time and space and exposure to garden cultures around the world. Today, he's sharing more about his own garden life journey, his curiosity, and garden culture observations. We'll be right back with more after a break. Stay with us. Okay, so thinking out loud this week. My conversation with Tucker has me thinking about and looking for what I now in my mind and hashtag collection am calling public demonstrations of gardening. Because while we are a large and beautifully diverse country of complex contradictions, crimes, and contrasts, we include a great many self-identified gardeners. 38% of all households in the U.S. at last check, and close to 43% of all NPR listeners, are gardeners. And we know this is a universal human impulse. So maybe it's not that famous gardeners aren't out there or we can't get a critical mass of cohesiveness in our community of gardeners. Maybe it's just that we need to raise up and center our leaders and shakers who do encourage and advocate for and creatively engage in this human endeavor we all love, gardening. 
Michelle Obama did get them, after all, to rip up that great big lawn in front of that great big white house. And Martha Stewart put the idea of beautiful, functional, and civic gardening at the heart of her empire, along with food and respected home skills. And Oprah, Oprah loves her gardens, her plants, her fruit and veg and fresh air. Robin Wall Kimmerer took the literary and horticultural world and expanded its vocabulary and imagination with braiding sweetgrass. Leah Penniman and her work at Soul Fire Farm, well, that's changed everything. Everything in terms of how we see and what we don't see and how we speak about who gardens. These are some of my public gardeners of the week along with Tucker Fitzpatrick in his garden, and you in yours, and me in mine. We are legion, and we make a difference to our communities, to our culture, to our economies, our families, and our larger environmental health. One public demonstration of gardening at a time. Now, back to our conversation with gardener, lawyer, and father, Tucker Fitzpatrick. This is Cultivating Place, conversations on natural history and the human impulse to garden. We're back now to our conversation with Tucker Fitzpatrick, gardener and father. As we move into the final part of our conversation, Tucker and I consider some of the cultural differences and similarities we've observed in different garden cultures around the world. What is it in a, in a culture, Germany, Austria, Singapore, United States. What is it that brings about this cultural valuing of horticulture as an endeavor? One of the things I found when I was traveling, and I remember this being even 25 years ago traveling through Southeast Asia and seeing just a lot of public gardening going on in private homes, but also in public spaces. And I found myself taking pictures, Tucker, of like the gardeners at work on the meadow matrix borders outside of the parliament building in the center of Budapest because I was just so fascinated by this woman there working as a gardener. And when I say gardener, I do not mean a crew of men who roll out of a truck, mow, blow, and go in our public spaces, which is how I see gardening going on here. And, and like, what is the difference? I, you know, I think in Washington, D.C., uh, or I'd like to think anyway, that maybe th- there are definitely those areas uh, of very high publicity that get that really loving care like you're talking about that you saw in Hungary. Um, but I think you're right for the vast majority of it is that, that we have here in Southern California anyway is kind of the, the, um, the crews where they're just, they're trying to get things done efficiently. And, uh, you know, I, I see my, my neighbors here, um, you know, a lot of them, they don't really like gardening. They just want to pay somebody to kind of have that box checked and, you know, here, here's your here's your money. Please go just take care of it for me. And, mm-hmm. and they don't want to learn about it or uh, really care about it. And that's you know, it makes me, I don't know, kind of sad. I guess that uh, they don't take more of an interest in it. But for whatever reason, in the United States, I'm sad to say, gardening is not as 
as important it is in some cultures like, say, Japan or, or England. I, I recently looked at, a, uh, at something on, on Amazon Prime, which was the BBC's coverage of the Chelsea Garden Show. I mean, they right. had five hours oh, of TV coverage on right. the Chelsea Garden Show. Yeah. I mean, I can't even imagine anything like that in the United States. I mean, first of all, we mm-hmm. don't even have, you know, a Chelsea Garden Show. But, um, you know, they've got, I don't know, five or six major garden shows in England. And they receive, you know, TV coverage. I mean, here, I mean, I think you probably would be lucky to get something on the local news or something, you know, for, you know, a couple of 30 seconds or 90 seconds or something. They're just not the interest here. And I don't know why that is. I mean, maybe it's just the cultural legacy in places like England and Japan, where it really came from the top, where you had, you know, the aristocracy valued this and it became identified with um, being, you know, a part of that, that upper crust. And so it, people got interested in it. Um, I just feel like in the United States, we don't have that gardening critical mass that, uh, you know, you don't have uh, celebrities, uh, promoting it or, or showing an interest in it, like say, you know, the royal family does over, right. over in England. Right. And I know, I mean, maybe it's because we're just too big and because we are just too eclectic as a culture ourselves. I mean, I, I think about, you know, the size of France or the size of England or the size of Germany. And you're talking about much smaller spaces, much more, um, not that they're more, they're, they're not less divisive than we are. They're not less, you know, combative about politics or sports or anything, but they are just a smaller space. So they maybe can come together over things like, you know, not allowing uh, GMOs in their agriculture, not maybe they can come to a vote more quickly or the peer pressure of gardening is great. And then that kind of catches on um, as a trend goes more quickly. I, I think in the U.S. of little hubs, right? Like, Portland, Oregon, and Seattle, Washington, where, or Austin, Texas, or Philadelphia. Like there are some great horticultural hubs in those spaces because, like you say, they have these long histories of people of note putting money and time and um, great enthusiasm into these endeavors. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And I, th- I think, you know, in, in Southern California, we definitely have some cultural institutions like, say, the Huntington Gardens yes. and Museum. Yeah. Um, that's that's really spectacular. Um, but it, there's not, you know, even, say, Southern California, I mean, we have so many immigrants from so many different parts of the world here. Uh, I think, like you're saying, that there isn't that, that, that common culture, so to speak. Mm-hmm. I think that's definitely part of it more so than maybe the expanse of it. I mean, even if you look at a place like Australia, I mean, they definitely have just judging by their, you know, their television media have a lot more uh, TV shows devoted to, you know, to gardening and that sort of thing than the United States does. I mean, I think the other fun thing for us, which could be a great asset and opportunity and, and is part of the heart of my of why I even started cultivating places that I knew every like a great many people have a gardening story and they all look a little different. So we have this, you know, like fabulous history of cultivating 
plants in spaces through indigenous people, through the African diaspora conversation, through the Hmong people that are a very big group up here. And, you know, and that is true all over the country. You know, there mm. there are the, there's a fantastic Czech population just south of um, Chicago. And they don't just have great food, they have fantastic gardening history as well. And it's a question of how do you how do you bring that out for people? How do you demonstrate that it's it is something that is worthwhile? And I think part of that is just conversations just like this one, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, you know, Americans are busy and everybody has competing interests for their time. Mm-hmm. But I think in the United States, as we were saying, you know, gardening isn't one of those things that has a high high enough profile that people would think of it as something that they have in common with everybody else. I mean, certainly, like I said, certainly not here in Southern California. It's it's more the exception than the rule. Yeah. So you mentioned traveling and seeing things and saying, oh, I'm going to like the trial gardens you saw in Germany. And you said you got ideas like what kind of cultural messages or design ideas or what what do you bring home from seeing garden culture in other spaces tucker i mean i I gotta step back a little bit and just tell you you know my garden for me really I, i guess i explained a little bit that it is a change of kind of brain waves for me when i come home from work and it's very much an escape you know I really started gardening seriously uh, when I moved to this house in 2014, when I was going through some tough personal times. Um, my son had been very, very sick. I, I just gotten divorced. And I was really, you know, turning to a gardening as something in my life I could control, frankly. But I ended up getting so much more out of it. I ended up, you know, getting this creative outlet and this this opportunity to learn about all these different things. And so you know, as kind of this escape for me, I would try to, I think, build or create gardens that remind me of these places like, say, Hawaii or something Mm -hmm. or or Singapore, kind of, you know, parts of my garden definitely have a little bit of that tropical um, look to them, Um, you know, and obviously, you got to pick the right tropical plants, because most of them will just turn to a crisp in the you know, 10% humidity that we get sometimes here. <laughs> uh, you know, just trying to create that, that, that sense of, of adventure and, you know, reminders of, of the bigger world and, you know, bigger things outside of yourself. And, and I think that's what, that's what I try to bring home as a kind of symbolically. Um, but also there's the, the really concrete ideas too. Like I saw at the trial gardens or, you know, I went to the National Botanic Garden in Washington, D.C. a few years ago and they had these amazing planters. And I'm like, wow, those, you know, (laughs) those are those look spectacular. And so I just totally copied them. (laughs) Yeah. You know, and, uh, you know, so now I've got, you know, cannas growing in planters with with sweet potato vine around them and some other things. And so I'm like, oh, I'll just, you know, I'll just take that. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That is the great American garden right there, right? We, we see other influences from everywhere and we're not constrained by one particular garden style. We can take little bits from all of them. So describe those planters that you were inspired by. Yeah. I mean, and, and that's what I love about Southern California, like you were saying, is 
you know, I, I don't know how it is in on the East Coast necessarily. I mean, my, my recollection is it's more um, there's more of a, a tradition there that people try to stick to. But here it's totally eclectic. And, you know, in, in my in my neighborhood, I think when it was developed in the 70s, parts of it were planted uh, in kind of this interesting, you know, semi Japanese style with these Japanese black pines. And there's still all of these uh really crazy topiaries that George and Jane Jetson would have been happy to have in their garden <laughs> that are, they're just such a throwback, but they're so cool too. Um, but anyway, getting back to your question, I mean, the topiaries, I'm sorry, the, uh, the planters, like I said, I've got this, um, deep burgundy colored canna that has this, this orange flower on it. And then these, you know, pale green chartreuse, sweet potato vine, growing around it in one direction. And then uh, another uh, burgundy, kind of deep, deep burgundy, almost black sweet potato vine growing in the other direction. And it just, I mean, the, the pots just, I mean, like I said, they just look great. And like I said, I thank you, National Botanic <laughs> Garden. Yeah. You are, we're getting our tax dollars worth. Uh, Absolutely. Yeah. And, and what are those pots that they're in? The, um, so they are in... Um, blue, uh, kind of cobalt blue glazed pots. Mm, nice. And yeah, I'm going to back up a little bit here. I had a fantastic interview with the uh, Caribbean writer, Jamaica Kincaid, and she is a fantastic writer about gardens and a fantastic gardener herself. And but one of her great Epiphanies was that the whole world comes to us in the garden if we are looking for it or we, you know, if we take the time to see it. So you were describing your terracotta pots at the back of your back garden and how you have the, the sort of tall junipers that you're now twining, some flowering vines, including some climbing roses up behind, and you have the terracotta pots planted uh, with maybe the agave with the yuccas, with the yuccas. and then mm -hmm. down along the the base you have um the wonderful fine foliage of tell me what it was again banksias banksias that's it and mm -hmm. you know and these are right there i saw the boboli gardens in florence and that oh, okay. like fantastic tradition of an orangerie where you have your citrus all potted up in these fabulous terracotta pots and then climbing roses up in the cypress or junipers behind them and um like there's a whole history and feel that is evoked through the way we put things together, even if we like switch up the plants a little bit. Absolutely. And, and it's so funny you mentioned that. I've never been to the garden you mentioned in Florence, but I was really trying to evoke this uh, scene of maybe kind of an it uh, Italian ruin that maybe you just come across yeah. and, you know, because the trees are in, the trees are in bad shape, right? But the, the, the vines are growing up through them and look glorious. And then the pots look really cool and the pots have kind of, are kind of aged. And, uh, yeah, so I was, I was totally trying to evoke an Italian scene there. So that's very interesting. Yeah. That maybe I succeeded. Well, and the fact that as a, a gardener in Southern California who comes home and gets his, you know, kind of spiritual and emotional and intellectual relief in the garden. And, you know, I am in Northern California now, but have gardened on the East Coast and gardened in Colorado and gardened in the Pacific Northwest. And I derive that same sense of just emotional and intellectual 
calm and rejuvenation and centering in in my space. But we recognize, I mean, there's the cultural, there's the horticultural literacy and cultural literacy there is that we can recognize in general terms a French garden, an English garden, an Italian garden. And, you know, we are lucky enough, I guess, to have this opportunity to just put them all together into our melting pot gardens. But being able to share that valuing and where we hold gardening in our lives, being able to model that to other people, whether it's our nine-year-olds, my 18 and 20-year-old, our neighbors, even though they're trimming their lawns, you know, every single week and Mm -hmm. giving them their feed mow and blow to be the kind of mini, very inept versions of Longwood Gardens for anybody else just seems to me really important. Absolutely. And uh, anytime I get a chance to talk about my garden to my neighbors, I do. And, uh, you know, most of them are, are really appreciative, even though I'm letting some of the sages grow out onto the sidewalk and <laughs> that sort of thing. Um, they don't seem to mind and always happy to, you know, offer cuttings or, or any, you know, do whatever I can mm-hmm. to, I guess, share my enthusiasm and passion and, and, and really kind of demonstrate how, how cool and beautiful it can be if that's your thing. And that's a place where you can find, you know, some solace and, and uh, enjoyment. Mm-hmm. And I know that you, also find yourself thinking about these concepts quite a lot. You know, why Why are there individual horticulturally trained gardeners at work in towns across Central Europe and they aren't here? Why, you know, why does, you know, one culture do one thing with gardening and another culture do another thing with gardening? When you think about this kind of conversation and you think about it in the larger context of you know your your neighborhood or your county or our american life why why do you think it's important beyond our own pleasure in plants why would this be an important value to advocate for i think anybody who who thinks about it a little bit will realize that you know materialism is not the best value and i feel like as americans we place that value higher than we should and one of the things that gets demoted in that hierarchy is you know love of nature and love of plants and so you know we are looking for something that you know kind of looks good you know quickly and efficient efficiently and for whatever reason, um, it, well, I don't want to say for whatever reason. I mean, our our country, I guess the 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 cultural influencers and leaders in our country have not conveyed a different message, or, or for whatever reason, that hasn't per- percolated up from from below either. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, to me, it's like it, it is that disconnection from nature that is the big problem here. Mm-hmm. And I think I think we all need to really just get our hands dirty and, uh, you know, be in some open space and and realize that thrill and wonder of it. 
And I think that's just hard for people caught up on, in their modern lives, you know, watching TV or looking at their iPad or whatever to to realize that's out there. And that's a, that's a really great experience. And it's one that in the long run will make you much happier than 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 other things. I mean, these are big generalizations we're making. I know there are there are you know there are a lot of us out there. That's I oh, think a, a, one of one of my great points is that there are more of us than we think there are. We just don't pull it out as something that's important to talk about, something to model. I had such great hope when. God lover Michelle Obama dug up that South Lawn and put in that garden because of all of the messages it conveyed of physical activity, of nutritional food, of plants for pollinators and kids to engage with. And um, I thought that was just a fantastic moment. No matter where your politics might lie, that was a message for everyone everywhere. And I know we're a very big country. I just uh, – and that I don't necessarily want us to all come around to one garden style. I want us to all embrace and share and, you know, marinate in all of these different styles with great joy. I feel like the more we talk about it and the more we hold it up as fun and meaningful and valuable, the, the better off we're going to be. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And the more you can, like you said, the more you can share, you know, your enthusiasm with people and, you know, how therapeutic it can be also. Um, I, I think people, I think it, hopefully it will start to catch on. I mean, like I said, I, I think a, a lot of the evidence of the lack of value Americans place on gardening is, you know, can can be found, say, in our, in our maybe in our politics or our, 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 our big media that doesn't really have that in it. But it's really most important at the individual level, like you said, and and you know your radio show sharing this this enthusiasm can only really really help spread it at that individual le- level. And uh, you know who knows, maybe you'll be on you know ABC someday. So <laughs> well, let's hope not. Let's just keep it, let's just keep it on public radio, but just more public <laughs> radios. Well, I have fully enjoyed our conversation, and I thank you so much for being a guest. And I just, I love talking about um, the culture of it, too, like thinking about the culture of it and how do we each individually make our own progress in promoting and supporting a gardening culture for everybody. I I agree. And, you know, how do we get rid of the, the mow and blow mentality mm-hmm. uh, of just, it's got to be quick and cheap. And, you know, how, how do we get people to realize there's so much more there? It's not, it's not about having, you know, neat and tidy. It's about enjoying the experience and enjoying the wonder of it. And not just something that you kind of walk through on your way to the front door to the car. And then you don't think about again. Thank you so much for being a guest today, Tucker. Oh, you're very welcome. Thank you. Tucker Fitzpatrick is a father, a lawyer, a gardener, and a gardening culture observer. He joined us today from his home and garden in Southern California to share more about his gardening journey and his curiosity and observations on gardening culture everywhere. Join us again next week when we hear from another curious and engaged home gardener, observer, and communicator 
Misty Little, her home garden practice outside of Houston, her adventures along the Florida coast, and her podcast, The Garden Path Podcast. There are so many ways people engage in and grow from the cultivation of their places. Cultivating Place is a listener-supported co-production of North State Public Radio. At CultivatingPlace.com this week, go over and check out some great photos of Tucker's eclectic and mindset-transforming home garden in Orange County, California. Our show producer and engineer is Matt Fiddler. Our executive producer is Sarah Bohannon. Original theme music is by Ma Muse, accompanied by Joe Craven and Sam Bevan. Cultivating Place is distributed nationally by PRX, Public Radio Exchange. Until next week, enjoy the cultivation of your place. I'm Jennifer Jewell.